pleasure to sing that psalm, which is actually the most often quoted psalm in the whole New Testament, because it has to do with so many aspects of the life and the death of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This afternoon, our reading of Scripture, Hebrews 3, 1 to 6, Hebrews 4, 1 to 4, and chapter 5, 1 to 10, and then our text will be the verses of chapter 4, verses 14, 15, and 16. First of all, Hebrews 3, verses 1 to 6. Hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses was also faithful in all his house. For this one has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but he who built all things is God. And Moses indeed was faithful in all things, in all his house, as a servant for a testimony of those things which would be spoken afterward. But Christ as a son over his own house, whose house we are, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. And then we turn to chapter 4, the first four verses of chapter 4. Therefore, since a promise of entering his rest, the author of Hebrews has talked about the people of God going to Canaan to the land of promise. He says in Hebrews 4, verse 1, Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear, lest any of you seem to have come short of it. For indeed, the gospel was preached to us as well as to them. But the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. For we who have believed do enter that rest. As he has said, so I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And then we turn to chapter 5, the verses 1 to 10. 5 verse 1, the word of the Lord. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is also subject to weakness. Because of this, he required, he is required, as for the people, so also for himself, to offer sacrifices for sins. And no one takes this honor to himself, but he who is called by God, just as Aaron was." So also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was he who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he also says in another place, You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications, with vehement cries and tears, to him who was able to save him from godly death, and was heard because of his godly fear, though he was a son, talking about Jesus, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. 
And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Called by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. So far Hebrews 5, then we back up a few verses to Hebrews 4. And our text this afternoon, verses 14 through 16. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is the word of the Lord. After the proclamation of God's word, we'll praise God with the words of hymn 42, stanzas 1, 2, and 3. Beloved brothers and sisters in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, one of the temptations that we always have to look out for when we're discussing a book like the letter to the, the book of Hebrews is the temptation to turn this whole book into a series of doctrinal treatises in which we can go off and theologize in some way that helps us in our situation. And we're all the more tempted to do that when we forget the original context. And I spoke a bit about the original context this morning. The, the, the people who first read Hebrews were probably in Rome. There's some discussion about whether it may be Jerusalem because there's a lot of temple language in Hebrews, but probably they were in Rome. There was a large Jewish section in Rome. We know that from the historical sources. We also know, because it's around 60 AD, that the Christians in Rome are not having an easy time. If it's not already happening, it's going to happen that Nero, there's going to be this fire, he's going to accuse the Christians, and he's going to start throwing Christians to the lions. And so you've got to see some of that against the background again and again and again to appreciate what the author of Hebrews is doing because what he's really doing is pulling out all the stops in order to show his compassion, God's compassion and mercy to, for his people. He's trying to say, yes, it's difficult. Yes, it's difficult. But God is doing something. And you've got to be aware of what God is doing so that you can persevere in these times. And that's such a comfort. If you're struggling today, if there are Christians in this world who are struggling today, and there are so many of them, I read today that the number of people who have died in Haiti, 724 last count. How many of those aren't among God's people? There's so much suffering in this world. Well, then we've got to come to the scriptures again and again for the sake of comfort in the midst of suffering. I think if you were the pastor then who would want to comfort these people, you would do exactly what Hebrews is doing. I mean, what he wants to say to them in the midst of this trouble is, there is somewhere you can go with all your anxiety and your suffering. There is someone who will listen to you, who loves you, and is powerful enough to help you through this time. And that's exactly what this passage is all about. 
It's not just a doctrinal treatise on the high priesthood of Jesus. It's a message which says there is a God, and this God does care. He does listen, and he's doing something about evil in this world. That's the message that went out then and goes out now, also to those who are suffering in our present world. And there are many of you. This message is for you. God's word comes to you then under this theme. We have a friend and a brother, a priest, in the highest of all places. We'll talk about the right person with the right past who's in the right place. The right person, verse 14. The right past, verse 15. The right place, verse 16. Brothers and sisters, we didn't read all these chapters, 4, 5, 6. It has to do with the people of God and the high priesthood of our Lord Jesus Christ. We didn't read all of this, but you've read it often enough to know that in these chapters we have all this language about priests and temples. And that's not exactly something that you and I can relate to. Here we are in this grassy field, and instead of at a temple or a tabernacle, we're in this grassy field, and we have some tent structures, but that doesn't have to do with our, our desire to worship in a more holy fashion. But we have to always realize the Bible is an ancient book. It's an old book. But it's not only an old book, it's a Jewish book. And if you as a pastor want to talk about people about their talk to your people about access to God, God hearing, God answering, God listening, it's an absolute must to talk about the temple, the tabernacle, the priest. This is where they have gone their whole life long. Whenever they wanted to approach God, they went to the tabernacle or the temple. The priest, that's where who you would go to when you messed up and sinned in some significant way. You would go and buy some appropriate sacrificial animal or whatever you would need for your sacrifice, and you would bring it to the priest who would sacrifice it in your behalf and make things well again with you and God. So this language about temple and priest and all of that has to do with that original audience. That's their kind of language. And the passage before this one, which we only read a small portion of, was largely about the very difficult and seemingly endless time when Israel went through the desert, 40 years through this desert. And notice they carried this tabernacle with them. And whenever they stopped, they pitched the tabernacle again. Because that's how you have access to God. And he talks about this wilderness period when Israel longed for the rest that would come when they would finally be there in the promised land. It's the land of rest, the land of promise. But even in that period, they would need to go this, through the same rituals, through the same priest. It's how you had access to God. And the implication, though it may not be stated in so many words, the implication is that we, the New Testament people, are also going through a wilderness period. I'm sure the writer also wants us to understand this. Just as Israel, although delivered from slavery in Egypt, was not yet in the promised land, but still in the wilderness, so the church today has not yet entered into God's full rest, as he calls it. The basic point of the comparison is that now, as well as then, the people of God are a pilgrim people. In New Testament times, as well as the Old Testament times, God's people are wayfarers. 
That's our basic identity. We're a people who are on the way. We have received wonderful blessings and wonderful messages, but we're not there yet. We heard that this morning. We're not there yet. It's not yet subject to Jesus. It doesn't mean, as some people would say, that this world is to be despised and rejected and all you have to do is hope for heaven and go to heaven and Now, this is God's world. This is his creation. And even when God makes everything new, something of this creation is certainly going to come back. It's going to be renovated. It's going to be renewed better than ever before. Take away the hospitals and the cemeteries, and you'll have a new earth upon which God's people will enjoy God. But this is God's world, but this world is not yet what it ought to be. It needs renewal, renovation. There are way too many hardships on it. It means also those on this pilgrimage are exposed to all kinds of difficulties and hardships. And all of that hardship tends toward an ultimate temptation, namely the temptation to give up, to abandon our confession. That's why it's so necessary for the writer to admonish us to hold to our confession. And he describes how it's a great confession because, you see, while the people of Israel going through the desert could drag this tabernacle along, set it up with all the accompanying structures and rituals, and then they could go see the priest, the point the pastor preacher of Hebrews is making is that we have a way that is far superior to any and all of that. The Old Testament, the old system there in the tabernacle and temple was not meant to keep on going forever and ever. That high priest had to sacrifice the same sacrifice year after year. When one high priest died, he, re- he was replaced by another one who continued the yearly sacrifice of the Day of Atonement. But Jesus is the one who fulfills all of that. Hebrews often has a way of demonstrating that. It says, Every high priest stood at his job. Why did he stand at his job? Because his his job was never done. When he was done with one sinner, there was another sinner behind him. When he was done with one sacrifice, there was another sacrifice behind that one. His job was never done. But Hebrews says, but we see Jesus who is seated at the right hand of God. And why is he seated? Because his job is done. He's finished. Jesus sat down because his job was complete. His one sacrifice was enough for all sinners of all times and all places. We have a new high priest who does not need to get replaced again and again and does not suffer from the same weaknesses as others. A high priest who is already to hear us. What is that? It's powerful imagery for to a Jewish audience about the fact that the way to access to God is always open. It's always there because Jesus is there. You see him crowned with glory and honor, but as you see him crowned with glory and honor, you see him also as the king who is the high priest who has compassion for his people. And the wonderful thing about this, this is, to, to, to deal with your sin now in this New Testament age, in this new wilderness, you don't have to go and make a trek to Jerusalem or to some tabernacle or some temple. You don't have to have an appointment to see him. You don't have to go somewhere, go through a whole ritual and a whole cleansing beforehand. You don't even have to pick up the phone. 
Long before any phones or cell phones were invented, God came up with his wireless invention called prayer. Bow your head. Humble your heart. Draw near to God. Deal with your sins every day again. Draw near to your Lord Jesus Christ and speak with him, plead with him, ask him for help as you plod through the desert. There can be no meaningful conversation without him. Look at him in the Gospels. Everyone comes streaming to our Lord Jesus Christ from all walks of life, every past, every sin. They all find mercy and grace with him. The message goes out in the Gospels. This man is not about judgment. This man is not about harshness and toughness. He's about compassion and mercy. And so there they come. Well, this kind of access is there for you and me today as well. The same Jesus who showed compassion in the Gospels is the Jesus who shows compassion from the heavens above. You don't first have to clean up your act before you can talk to him. You don't first have to turn your life around before you can communicate with him. You turn your life around and clean up your act best precisely by coming with all sincerity and in all brokenness before our Lord Jesus Christ, our priest, in humble repentance and dependence. It's very striking in this section of Hebrews, Jesus is the answer to the problem of rest. How do the people of God receive the rest that they looked for in the wilderness, rest even from their own sin? Ultimately, they find it not just by coming to a land, Hebrews says there remains a, a promise of rest. Why? Because ultimately they did not find the full fulfillment of that rest in this land. They find it in Jesus the Christ. What the old Joshua could not give them, the new Joshua does. We enter God's rest in the expectation of coming to that great land of rest on the new heaven and the new earth. Not just when we get there, but when we come with hearts of faith to embrace our Lord Jesus Christ who said, Come to me and I will give you rest. Jesus is the answer to the problem of rest. And Jesus is the answer to the problem of prayer. He is the great high priest to whom we can go as we journey through the wilderness. We must go if you want to make it through the desert. You've got to stop at whatever oasis you can stop at. And every worship service, every opportunity to be in devotions before God is an oasis in the deserts. He is the high priest we need when the going gets rough, as it often does in the desert. You and I have no idea what a desert is like and what it means to journey on foot through a desert. If we ever come to a desert, we're probably in an air-conditioned bus. But imagine walking through a desert. If we ever did that, we'd appreciate all the imagery all the more. Jesus is the right person to consult with again and again as you journey through the desert. When you can't take it anymore, when you have nowhere else to turn, be sure to turn to him, for he is indeed the right person. 
Jesus is the right person for so many reasons. He is of the order of Melchizedek. He lives forever. He is appointed by God. He has sacrificed himself as a sacrificial lamb and is, has, has entered the presence of God and is without sin himself. And what is more, he's not only the right person because he's the person who did all that, he's also the right person because he's the right person with the right past. Today, when we speak about a person with a past, we usually mean a person with some bad history. And whether it was their own doing or whether it was inflicted on them, a person with a past means they got stuff to work out. But that's not what we mean here because Jesus has the right past. He has the right past because his is of such a nature that regardless of what our past looks like, he can repair, he can forgive as no one else can. He can cleanse us even of a shady and sinful past. You see, in that past, he became human. He became one of us, and therefore, Hebrews says, he's not unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but he is one in who, in every respect, has been tempted as we are. The old King James Version used to say that Jesus is touched with the feeling of our infirmities. He's touched by the weakness of feeble flesh. Whatever touches us, touches him. To say, I feel your pain, has become kind of a cliche today. But in Jesus' case, it's true. He's moved by our sorrow. He's aware of our tears and touched by our failures. He can relate to what we're going through. Sometimes when we're in the middle of a hard time, well-meaning people will say to you, I know what you're going through. Actually, that's kind of a cruel thing to say because the truth is they probably don't know what you're going through. How can you be sure you know what another person is thinking or feeling? I think it's better not to say that because if you really do know what another person is going through, your heart will make that clear to them. And if you don't, if your heart doesn't do that, it's far better to say nothing at all. Just show your caring heart in other ways. But the point is, our Lord Jesus, to whom we pray, is not some marble statue devoid of emotions and feelings. His full divinity does not make his full humanity less somehow. He knows our pain. He understands what we're going through. Because he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, he can relate to our sorrows and our grief. In his case, because he's divine, he actually does know what you're going through. Because he never went through it as a robot. He went through death as a human being, 100% human, even if he was 100% divine. And the one doesn't cancel out the other. Do the first readers in Rome, wherever they are, imagine when they are tempted to give up the Christian faith, to abandon the faith altogether, do they imagine that they are all alone in that and that Jesus cannot relate? Do you think there were times, that there were not times in the face of opposition from Jewish leaders or the foolishness of Peter or the plotting of Judah, Judas, 
or the falling asleep of all the rest. And do you think there was not times when Jesus said, I'm out of here? Was he not tempted to give it up and say, I don't need this? And what about all that pain and agony? And meanwhile, he had the power and the ability to just walk away. Can I, can I not call 12 legions of angels and they will come? Instead, he endured the cross, despised the shame, and went on with the task for us. How good it is to know he was tempted just as we are. The text means that Jesus faced every kind of temptation we can possibly face. Basically, every temptation falls into three, one of three categories. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, says John. Jesus defeated the devil in those three areas. Where we fail, he succeeds. Where we give in, he stood strong. Where we collapse under pressure, Jesus obeyed. He was tempted, yet he never sinned by giving in. But his sinlessness did not consist in an absence of human weakness, but in an ever-renewed victory over temptation. Hebrews says at one point, Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered. We come at this with our dogmatics and we say, well, Jesus was divine, so he didn't have to learn that. He could just do it. No, no. Let's accept the scriptures. Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered. Whereas you and me, we usually learn disobedience when we suffer. There's an idea out there which suggests that only people who have had a really bad past can help you improve your future. If you want to get through a rough marriage and a divorce, and they say you got to find a counselor who went through a rough marriage and a divorce. Really? You have to have been an alcoholic in order to help somebody who's an alcoholic, they say. At one point, C.S. Lewis discusses this idea in his book, Mere Christianity. He says, A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. That's an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of the German army precisely by fighting against it not by giving up to it. You find out the strength of the wind, not by lying down, but by trying to walk against it. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply doesn't know what it would like, what it would have been like an hour later. That's why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. Christ because he was the one man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full extent what full temptation means. You can go to him. He will understand. He will have compassion because he went through all those temptations and came out a victor. It's really quite wonderful, by the way, to think about the caring heart of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's often said today, 
But people don't care how much you know unless they know how much you care. It's actually the key to all effective ministry. Let me repeat that. People don't care how much you know unless they know how much you care. Before anything else, a pastor has to convey to his people the sense that he cares, that he has a heart for them, compassion for them. A pastor, an elder, a deacon, a a, a parent, whoever we are, the first thing we have to communicate, whether by words or by actions, is that we care. If you have done nothing else but communicate the love of Christ, you've done a great deal. People don't care how much you know unless they know how much you care. But if you give them no sense that you care at all, they're just going to erect this wall, this artificial barrier, however possibly they can erect it, and you're not going to get through. You don't have a snowball's chance in hell. Think about that with respect to the Lord Jesus and you have incentive to pray. Think about it longer and harder and you realize not only is he a a person who cares and loves, he's also a person who knows everything there is to know about you. When you come before him and confess your sin, it's not as if you're informing him about something he doesn't know, the only thing you're informing him perhaps about is the fact that your heart is contrite and you want to straighten this out and you want to do better and you want to live to his glory and praise. He's a person who knows everything about you. We kind of make a mess of prayer, don't we? We, we erect these barriers. We, we find theological cliches. We find old traditional words we've used a thousand times before, thinking that that presents us into the, into the holiness of God. It's kind of like when the elders come on their annual home visit. The elders come, they want to ask them questions, and they want to delve into your heart, not just into the weather and whatever else. They want to talk about things that matter. But you're very good. We're very good at erecting those barriers, especially when we have the idea, they don't really care about me. And we can erect those barriers, and they're trying to break the barriers down, and you're trying to erect them. Well, we do the same thing with God. We build these barriers that we're a good people, and we're a good fellow, and I'm a good fellow, and whatever else. God sees through it. Don't fool him. You don't fool him for a minute. He sees through every facade you can erect. He sees through every posture that you can develop, every pretension that you ever put forth. You might as well be honest and open. You can fool the elders, but you can't fool God. He knows, and he cares. And most of all, he wants you just to come clean and deal with it. It's rather striking in Hebrews. These chapters of Hebrews speak about the hard-heartedness of the people of God. We didn't read it all, but it's about those stubborn people, the heart of heart, slow to believe. Psalm 95, it gets quoted because of the hardness of God's people. And God says, they will never enter my rest. It's no wonder you get hard-hearted 40 years in a desert. What is the cure 
The cure is the soft-heartedness of our Lord Jesus Christ. So too for us. When life is hard, when the wilderness is tough, we become hard. We become tough. You and I have maybe known an older generation which even though their, their faith and their commitment was very deep, was quite characterized by a toughness and a hard outer shell. What do you express, expect? When in your life, I said something to this effect at my, the passing of my mother, born in the First World War. When in your life you go through a depression, a world war, immigration, poverty, when life is tough, you need to be tough. You become tough. What is the answer whenever the wilderness is tough? It's the tenderness of our Lord Jesus Christ. In the face of his compassion, you learn something about compassion. In the face of his heart for his people, you learn something about your heart and you come clean before him because he knows everything about you and you're in the face of God, you develop new characteristics, a new softness, a new gentleness because he is gentle and lowly in heart. Learn from me, he says. Take my yoke upon you. What is he talking about? He says it in the next phrase, and learn from me. Yoke is the yoke of teaching and of learning. Come to me and I will give you rest. Put away this hard-hearted outer shell and just be who you are because that's whom our Lord Jesus Christ wants to deal with. It's the tenderness of our Lord Jesus Christ that breaks through our hard-heartedness. He's able to sympathize with our weaknesses. He is touched with the feeling of our infirmities. Jesus is the one who can offer the people of God a rest because he is indeed gentle and lowly in heart. That's why when we come into his presence in prayer, we might as well be open and honest, stop pretending, because he sees through us completely anyway. That's why prayer prayer is not a place to be good and to be theologically correct. Prayer is a place to be honest. It's not a place to perform. It's a place to be present. It's not a place to prove your worth. It's a place to rejoice in the worth of Jesus Christ and offer yourself to him in truth. As I was putting this message together, I, I read... Someone characterized the whole life of our Lord Jesus with the words of John 1, verse 14. They are beautiful words. We have talked about the fulfillment of, of the tabernacle and the temple. We have beheld his glory, glory as of the only one of the Father. He, the, the, the grace of God tabernacled among us, John says. And then he says, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And this author goes on to say, that's, what, that's Jesus. He's full of grace, and he's full of truth. He suggested that wherever you see the Lord Jesus in the Gospels, you see these true. You see grace, and you see truth. Jesus tells everyone the truth, regardless of whether it's hard or not, but he always does it in a gracious way. He wasn't 50% grace and 50% truth. He was 100% grace and 100% truth. 
He suggests if we would be Christ-like, we must do likewise. As the recipients of the grace of God in Christ, if we fail to be gracious with others, we fail to be Christ-like. If we fail to tell them the truth that they need and tell it to them graciously, we fail to be Christ-like. Paul says we need to speak the truth in love. You could say, speak the truth with grace. Don't do it because you're so right and they're so wrong. And you're so wonderful and they're so bad. Speak the truth with grace. The same grace that saved you and me is open to them. But if we know of both grace and truth, we are like Christ. Some churches, this author said, some churches today embrace truth. But they, what they really need is a heavy dose of grace. Other churches talk about grace, but they cry out for a heavy dose of truth. How about your church? That means how about you, because you are the church. Are you more characterized by truth, standing on the truth, or by the grace of God? Or do you suitably blend these two together, as even our Lord Jesus Christ does? Some churches embrace truth, but need a heavy dose of grace. Others talk about grace, but cry out for a heavy dose of truth. Truth without grace breeds a self-righteous legalism that poisons the church and pushes the world away from Christ. Do you think they'll really come? If all you show is you're right, they're wrong, and never show them grace, do you think they'll come? Or will they do a U-turn as soon as they walk in here? Grace without truth breeds moral indifference and keeps people from seeing their need for Christ. If you want to see a gracious Christ, just read Luke's gospel. You know, these gospels, they weren't not meant to be read across from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You're supposed to read them cover to cover. And if you read Luke's gospel from cover to cover, what do you see? You see uh, Jesus who is at great pains to tell us, um, uh, Luke who is at great pains to tell us about a Jesus who has compassion for everyone, all the marginalized of his society. He shows them all this big-heartedness, the tax collectors, the sinners, and the prostitutes, and the lepers, and the prodigals, and the widows, you name it. He is among them. He's not found among those Pharisees who just talk about truth and truth and Jesus, you're wrong and wrong and wrong, and they're wrong. They don't understand the scriptures. They don't understand the power of God. They don't understand the grace of God. But the point is, the Jesus whom you meet in Luke's gospel, as the one who shows compassion for all the wayward and not for the righteous. The righteous, they don't need a physician, he says. The Jesus who shows a compassion for all the wayward is the same Jesus we pray to today. He hasn't changed. He has not lost his compassion. He continues to sympathize with our weaknesses. He has a heart for the down and out. He sees the people in Rome struggling with Nero and everything else, and he knows where this is going. He sees us. He sees Haiti. He sees Afghanistan. 
He sees the trouble points of this world and he has a heart for them all. And so you, if you're struggling like all these people are, you just better tell them the truth and pour it out. He knows it anyway. You can tell him the truth because he not only upholds and knows the truth, he always will show grace. The sympathetic heart of our high priest draws us in. The loving heart of our Savior pulls us towards him when this world seems to be everything but a loving place, when it seems like a wilderness indeed. When we pray, we don't have to worry that he will somehow shock him. He's heard it all and seen it all. We can go ahead and be entirely honest. He loved us even when we were still all messed. He's the right person with the right past who can and does open up your and my future. And what is more, he is in the right place. He's the right person with the right past who is in the right place. Think about it. If you could take our Lord Jesus Christ and place him anywhere in all creation, where would that be? Would you like him to would you like to bring him back to earth maybe? Or send him on some other mission? Would you like to take him and bring him right here so that we can enjoy him? Well, tell me if you bring him right here and put him here, it'll be nice to have a conversation with him, but what good will he be to the Christians in Hamilton or Afghanistan or Haiti or wherever they are? What, what good will he be there if he's here and all in sound? But he's in the right place because from there, all the peoples of the world can see Jesus crowned with glory and honor. The Jesus who cares for them, he cares for them all. They can see him. The truth is there is no better place to have a person like our Lord Jesus Christ now than in the heavens where he beholds the face of his Father and can send forth his Spirit and his angels. Jesus is our advocate, the catechism says, our advocate before the Father. You know what an advocate is? He, he's, he's, it's an old word for, for lawyer. And I tell you, if anywhere I need a lawyer, it's in that place, that holy place, heaven above. He is there because he has burst through the curtain, entered the very place that was forbidden space for centuries, and there pleads with God on our behalf. He is in the right place, defending us with his own blood. Thankfully, it's his blood, not mine or yours. And notice what has happened in this right place. For centuries it has been the throne of God. It has been the place that everyone feared. The regular priest could not come near lest they would die. The high priest could come but only once a year and only if he went through all this ritual before he even dared to go to it. But now Hebrews gives it a special name. It's no longer just the throne of power or the throne of holiness or the throne of God. It is the throne of grace. Why grace? Because Jesus is there. And, and what we need most from him is his grace. It's the place where we find mercy and find grace more than anything else. One man said, think about this, prayerlessness is the root 
of all sin. When we do not give time each day to be to earnest and believing prayer, we are saying that we can cope with life without divine aid. It's human arrogance at its worst. Jesus knew that he had to pray, and he did so gladly, necessarily, and effectively. He not only learned obedience through what he suffered, he even prayed as he was suffering. Look at him in the Gospels again and again. He goes off to the hills. Why? To pray. Why does he pray? Not because it's the time of day to pray, but he goes off to pray because it, he needs to pray. He needs to talk to the Father. He doesn't live in sin. Prayerlessness is the root of all sin. Do you think Jesus is prayerless? We are saying, if we're a prayerless, we, we're saying we believe in God, but we can do without Him. It's really a, a practical form of atheism. We profess to be believers, but we don't really talk to God. It's a practical form of atheism. On the books, and maybe the books of this church, we look very religious. You can get it at a station and says he's a good guy. But what about in reality? Is it a practical form of atheism for you? We are saying that we believe in God, but we can do without Him. It makes us careless about our former sins and heedless about our immediate needs. The passage urges us to come into the presence of God who welcomes us and into the presence of a Christ who understands us and has compassion for us. To neglect the place of prayer is to rob ourselves of immense and timely resources for the Christian, the throne of grace is the place of help. And you don't even need a priest. You don't even need an elder. You don't even need a minister. Jesus is your priest. You can access the throne of God, the throne of grace through him. Verse 16 ends with the good news that here in this right place, we can find grace to help in our time of need. It even happens at the right time. One modern translation says we can find grace to help in the nick of time. I like that. The last phrase literally means at the right moment. God's answers are always perfectly timed, not too soon, not too late, and often they do seem to come in the nick of time. We see it all the time. People go through life taking God for granted, yawning whenever the discussion is about the grace of God. Really? And then the news comes, tragedy strikes. You got about six months to live. And all of a sudden, there's the grace of God in the time of need. The grace in the throne of God's grace gets lifted up like never before. God gives us the grace we need, but too often we become aware of it just then when we truly needed it. And the truth is, we needed it all the time. There's never a day when you don't need this. So let's not live like that. Let's embrace Him today. Because remember this morning, we heard it this morning, you've got a glorious future coming. And he, and he alone, is the way in which we get access to that future. But if you want that future, you've got to live with him in the present now.
in the words of the popular hymn, I will trust my Savior Jesus. When my darkest doubts befall, trust Him when to simply trust Him seems the hardest thing of all. I will trust my Savior Jesus. Trust Him when my strength is small, for I know the shield of Jesus is the safest place of all. Jesus, only Jesus, help me trust you more and more. May my heart be ever yours. I will trust my Savior, Jesus the Christ. He has said his way is best, and I know the path he's chosen leads to everlasting rest. Jesus, only our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.